Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Four at the Back. It's been a little while, but we are here before the start of our next season just to come and check in and talk through some of the interesting talking points of the Premier League season so far. It's just me and Neil here tonight, but we're going to look over the interesting happenings that have taken place at Tottenham Hotspur over the start of the season because it's been a mad, mad summer and things have not really calmed down too much in the start of the season either. So, uh, Neil, you're a Spurs fan. Let's go back to where it all kind of began with that crazy, odd little manager search that seemed to never end. I mean, because Conte, you mean great manager, but you approached him in the summer and he turned you down, I'm led to believe. So, so what's different? What's changed? I think you have to go a bit further back than that. Actually, I think you have to go all the way back to, you know, to Madrid and to the Champions League final and to the aftermath of that and. You know, a heartbroken Pochettino going straight from the Champions League final to, uh, you know, to his home in Spain and as essentially, you know, being, I think, so grief stricken by what had happened that uh, he was a sort of shell, his former self, and he ends up losing his job. Uh, we end up, you know, getting this sort of supposed quick fix winner in Mourinho. But of course, Mourinho, as we've seen, isn't really that guy anymore. And so you have sort of 18 months of, you know, fairly miserable football, actually, under Mourinho. And then Mourinho is sacked on the eve of the, I was about to say Carling Cup final, then the Carabao Cup final. <laughs> um, and Ryan Mason sees through the end of the season. And then Levy puts out a statement that says that he's after a manager that fits the Spurs DNA of attractive, free-flowing football. Now, if he'd never put that statement out, then I think what happens next is maybe a bit easier to swallow for Spurs fans. But but he's basically acknowledged that Mourinho was a mistake and that Mourinho was like George Graham, actually, not Spurs DNA. And so then you get the manager search. And I think, you know, you have the new sporting director. So you have uh, Paratici in place. And obviously the market that he knows best is Italy. And you see successive approaches for Conte, for Fonseca, and then for Gattuso. Now, Gattuso would have been perhaps even less of a fit for Tottenham Hotspur than, uh, than Mourinho or Nuno. But nevertheless, he's got, he's got these, these three Italian managers with, well, not, Fonseca's obviously not Italian, but, but he works in Italy. Uh, these managers with varying degrees of success in Italy. And they all, for various reasons, turn the job down now we're led to believe that that what happened with Conte uh was that he wasn't quite convinced that Spurs would match his ambitions that's not necessarily just transfer wise that's also he wasn't sure it was a big enough club for him which you know actually is probably fair enough now in terms of what's changed it's been made pretty clear that United aren't interested in Conte and if they were to sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, their first choice is Pochettino. Now, in terms of what United are after, somebody that can be a Ferguson and build for 10 or 15 years, yes, that Pochettino is your guy. And he also seems to not be having very much fun in Paris. So that 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 may be why United didn't move for Conte. Because, of course, after the, the Spurs-United game, when... Uh, rather miserably lost 3-0. Um, it was dubbed uh, El Sakiko because whoever, whichever manager lost was likely to lose their job and that ends up being 
Nuno and Conte perhaps has realised that, that the United job isn't out there for him. He's burnt his bridges at Juve. He doesn't want to go back into, into international management. And there isn't, I don't think, a big international job vacant at the moment anyway. So either he kind of waits for the, the, the PSG merry-go-rounds um, to tick through. You know, um, Narkelsman's only just taken over at Bayern. Probably Dortmund isn't a fit for Conte, and they've just taken on Marco Rosa, who's the the the, the bright young thing of, of German coaching at the moment. So, you know, there's not these big jobs opening up. Barcelona, again, Conte's not a fit there. Um, looks like they've appointed Xavi. Where is he going to go? And And so I think actually this time around, you look at the training grounds, you look at the stadium, you look at the squad, which is deceptively good. And maybe Levy has compromised a bit and said, yes, you can have some money to spend in January. And he's decided to take it on. Actually, if you look at the league table before the weekend's games, it was a a five point gap uh, to the top four. So it isn't quite as disastrous as it might appear. Five wins, five losses under Nuno. So, yeah, it's, you know, I, I wasn't convinced in the summer about the idea of appointing Conte. It's the sort of the anti-Chelsea bias, but also the fact that he does tend to be a sort of two years and and off he goes um, manager. Only at Juve has he stayed longer than that. Uh, but actually, having watched the miserable two months of the Nuno regime, I'm actually very excited about, about Conte and about the football um, that they play. He's into team, certainly were very entertaining. His Chelsea team were actually a lot more entertaining than probably they're given credit for. He's characterised as a defensive coach. I don't think that's what he is. He's Italian, so obviously he's got that in his DNA. But, you know, ultimately he his teams are, uh, are quite ruthless going forward. So, you know, and it is a high-profile appointment. So, um, yeah, kind of excited to see what happens next. It's a good chance, really, that, this is actually the appointment that Mourinho was supposed to be in some ways because Conte is one of the best coaches in the world at the moment and is a proven winner. Whereas Mourinho is to a degree trading on a, a reputation from the past in that role. It doesn't really feel like the same manager, as you say, whereas Conte is like right in that moment at the kind of peak of his powers. So if Tottenham are going to kind of get off the schneid and win some of these major honours, it feels like this might be the moment to do it. Um, obviously, you have... You go back to to that situation in the summer. Uh, he he does turn you down, and you go into that kind of thing with the the stream of Italian managers that you mentioned. The name that was ruled out right at the start was Nuno. I forget who it was, whether it's Levy or his um, director of football, but somebody rules out the Nuno appointment, and yet he ended up with a job after an embarrassing uh, length of time of all these other appointments falling through. Was he doomed then, or? Was there a chance for this to go better than it has? I think looking back, yes, he was. I mean, you always try and be cautiously optimistic about managerial appointment, but everyone knows that he's a counter-attacking defensive coach. Even that opening day victory against Man City, the reason we won that game was because they played Son, Lucas, Bergvine really narrow as a front three they basically left them up the pitch and they scored on a counter-attack now 
Nuno, probably, if he'd lost Kane, would have played those three as his counter-attacking trident, relies on the defence. And, you know, that was, that was probably his instincts about how he wanted to play. But, of course, he's also come in with this sort of line from Daniel Levy, they'll be playing attractive, entertaining football, which isn't what Nuno does. You know, essentially, he's kind of been described as Mourinho accepts a nice bloke. <laughs> in terms of his his football philosophy so yeah not not really a fit for the club um then it's come out in various stories in the athletic that he was not a big presence around the training ground you know um uh, Pochettino basically has his hand in everything that happened around the training ground and, and Mourinho also and and Nuno very much sees himself as that continental head coach there was even this bizarre detail, a slightly David Brent detail of him taking a smaller office uh, to show, I don't know, some sort of egalitarian spirit. But it, it, it just seemed like it was too big for him. And he didn't seem to know. He didn't seem to know what to do to arrest the slight. So you get these three one nil victories, all of which are pretty fortunate. The Palace game is when the wheels come off. North London derby was shocking. You know, European games, he started playing the second 11. That felt like the kind of, you know, under 11s where you, you know, you have two teams and you rotate them and the team that knows they're the second team resent it and don't play very well. You know, it, mm. it was a really, really poor, really poor decision, ultimately, looking back, I think. Just to, so, jump, in, just to jump in for a second, that Palace game where you did lose 3-0, that was a real kind of eye-opener for me. I mean, I hadn't seen too much of them before that. You obviously see them racking up one nils and you think, well, they can't be doing that well, but also they are winning. So you give them the benefit of the doubt. I was really struck with just how easily Palace made work, light work of them in that game. And that run where they lost then to the Chelsea the following week and then North London derby. How far back do you have to go to find Spurs performances, like a, a run of Spurs performances quite that bad? Probably the last days of Pochettino. <laughs> but, uh, although there was and that, that sort of little run of Mourinho just before the first lockdown as well was, was, was quite poor. But, but um, I think, you know, the, uh, the Brighton game of Pochettino, I remember that just being absolutely abysmal. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was that Palace game was particularly bad because it, it was just so many brain dead decisions by, by players and you just felt like a well-coached team, you know, wouldn't have been headless chickens against a Palace team, which is really quite quite low on quality. And, and that that did that did ring a lot of alarm bells, you know. And but actually, if you, even if you go back to the Wolves game, that was absolute daylight robbery to come away with a one-nil in that game. Uh, the City game, they absolutely battered us for 89 minutes and there was one minute where they broke and scored a goal. So, you know, I think that that's the worrying thing is even those three victories, he got manager of the month, but but it was a house built on sands for a certainty. And, and you know, I, I think he was still a bit of a broken man for how the Wolves experience ended, I yeah. think, because you, you lose Jota to Liverpool who you know, Jota immediately makes Liverpool a, a better team until he gets injured and then the wheels come off of Liverpool a bit. 
in in that part of that season when Jota's injured. Um, they lose him and there's that horrific head injury and, and they just never recovered from that. And I think, you know, having built that project at Wolves, he was very shocked at how it it all unraveled so quickly. So to then jump from that to a, a top six job in English football is it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a strange upwards trajectory for somebody that's that's, that's just basically had a bit of a bruising experience. Yeah. And uh, although historically, obviously, Wolves are a massive club, you have to see it in the the, the context of they're not really an established Premier League side in the context of the last 25 years or so. They are a side that's the odd season uh, you know, removed from their records and you kind of like they're just pleased to be in the top flight as a general. I don't mean to kind of come off as kind of condescending with that, but there was a long time where Wolves were not in the top flight there. Despite being one of the most fancied sides in the second tier, they would always fall short, always fall short. Whenever they did come up, it was for a small amount of time. Tottenham, certainly the last 15 years of Tottenham is a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is that you're looking at a fan base. Now, it's interesting, actually, sort of seeing the reaction to younger Tottenham fans, but also overseas Tottenham fans. And and that's that's something which has definitely changed about about the club support. Older Tottenham fans, which sadly I'd have to include myself in now, we've seen uh, like nothing can ever shock me now. Like, you know, having lived through the 90s, you know, this is still Nuno's reign relatively. <laughs> like, isn't even that bad. Mm, it's um, not Christian Gross, is it? No, but but it's you know these 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 fans from from overseas, particularly in America. We've got quite a big fan base in America, and we've got people that have essentially just come on board for the Harry Red, you know Harry Redknapp's run onwards. And, and if you and if you look at that that period of time. Um, and and say if you're a a ten year old Tottenham fan, you've only really experienced Pochettino in any meaningful way. So those are the fans that are just that were just completely, you know, sort of sickened by 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 what they were seeing on on the pitch. But I think at, at, at White Hart Lane on on Sunday there was just such a a straw that broke the camel's back feeling to it. You know, the way that Pochettino wasn't backed in the summer of 2018 when the when the squad needed refreshing and, and players that he wanted cleared out weren't cleared out. The way that the Mourinho appointment, you know, was a grasping at straws. Let's try and get a winner to get the last out of the older Weirelds and, um, and the Tongans of the world the way that, that this manager search was handled and the pretty crap football that, that was, you know, being served up on the pitch. And that when that Lucas substitution happened, he was, that was it. He was gone at that point. It's interesting you saying that because it just got me thinking, if you are, say, 20 odd years old and you, you don't really have any memories of sport until you turn about five, six years old, I don't think, Not, nothing concrete. So if you were that old, you've only seen Tottenham finish outside the top half once in that time. And that was the season that you won the League Cup. 
So it's not like that's a bad year in the grand scheme of things. You compare that to the Ardiles reign, for instance, or Christian Gross, or even some of the the more turgid stuff in the, uh, under George Graham, and and you know there's there's such a difference there. Uh, it's 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 funny to think about just how much that's going to have changed expectations because it's 20 years that I'm talking about now. It's it's not uh, not a short length of time at all. It's funny. I was talking to some to some American Spurs fans uh, online, and I got quite annoyed with them because they they came across so entitled. Where is our attractive football? And, you know, I, I, I want that as much as the next Spurs fan. But I'm also aware of the fact that, that <laughs> the history of the club is not that we've been necessarily dishing out champagne fare for the past hundred years. You know, no. it's kind of uh, it's 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 like, yes, that is the, um, you know, that is the sort of the it is the DNA of the club. There's no getting away from that. But, but you know, in, in my 30 odd years of being a fan um we've been crap plenty of times so mm. I, I did i did i did try to say to them like if you think this is bad then uh I, i've got something to tell you <laughs> yeah it's uh it's just a different world isn't it um i get trying to think when i was a kid i mean the only they were trying to play nice football under rd this just didn't work because i mean you know, f- i mean there was plenty of nice football in the, in the 90s but it was just very inconsistent so i mean yeah. like if you take I mean, to be fair, under you know, you my first kind of three managers, right? So maybe I remember a little bit of of, of Birkinshaw, like you know, very very vague memories of 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 seeing bits and bobs of of that team under Birkinshaw that still had Glenn Hardelin, like quite vague memories of that. And then David Pleat, remember you know a little bit of that with the the Clive Allen season. And then Venables and those three managers, yes, absolutely, they were, they, they all played really, they they played really, really good stuff. And you know, having gone back and watched the VHSs and all the rest of it, you know, we used to be able to get in Woolworths with all of the sort of highlights of the 80s and things like that. Yeah, those were really good football teams. And the Venables team is my first, I guess, my first proper team that I was, you know, very invested in. And and sort of when Venables goes, it's this sort of weird partnership, like co-managers. It's Clements and Perryman, and 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 it's a very you know like odd arrangement, and it's just very 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 inconsistent. Um, and then the Ardiles, yeah, the Ardiles era. Obviously, the football going forward was unbelievable. Which is you know there was like Gary Mabbott standing on his own uh, in the in, <laughs> in the penalty box with nobody else around him. So, so yeah, and then obviously you you get the the sort of um, Jerry Francis, which is you know had great promise, but you know nothing more than that. And then Gross Graham, no thank you. Hoddle again promising, but but no substance. And it's only really finally when you get to uh, when you get See. to Martin Yell that, that 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 things that things get better. Um, and as I, as I said before on this podcast, like. Martin Yo is my favourite Spurs manager. I think he it's very underestimated. He 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 dug the club up from the dead, really. Mm, yeah, he laid the groundwork, didn't he? Um, that run through Spurs managerial history does kind of lead us quite nicely back to to Conte and what and what comes next. You know, what's actually what's he capable of with this Spurs side? You know, where does Spurs go in the two three years before, if history tells us anything, he inevitably blows up? Um, but you, maybe there's some good stuff that can happen in that time. If I'm if I'm putting an optimist hat on, and I, as I try to explain to my American friends, uh, being a pessimistic Spurs fan is not going to be any, any fun for anybody, really. 
Um, you have to be an optimist, otherwise there's no point. So, uh, you know, I, I think from an optimistic point of view, he has worked with Paratici very closely at Juventus. They've got a good relationship. Paratici knows what Conte demands. And it's going to be down to Paratici to be that mediator with Levy and ensure that Levy is providing what Conte is asking for. And it's a bit of a misconception that Conte is a, a big spending manager because he's actually taken quite a lot of players on freeze. And, and um, you know, if you think back to that Chelsea team, the two of the most important players are Victor Moses and Marcos Alonso, who Moses was already there and Alonso cost a pittance. And he turned them into these, you know, marauding wingbacks that, that, that terrorised the league and you know largely that Chelsea team that that, that he took to the uh, you know took to the Premier League title was pretty much what he inherited from Mourinho that there wasn't you know I mean they bought Kante but but aside from that it was pretty much what he inherited so um yeah so I, I think it doesn't have to be that you've opened the checkbook and spent you know, millions upon millions. But if there's a key position and he's identified a player, then 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 Levy's, you know, you know, Levy's going to need to make sure that he that he does open the checkbook. So at Inter, for example, it was Ashraf Hakimi, um, Lukaku, and Barella who were the three key signings. And you're probably going to look at the same thing at Spurs and say, look, he's probably going to want three key players. And as long as, long as Levy's happy to pay the money for the, the, the guys that he really wants, you know, there's no reason to suggest that, that the first 18 months to two years shouldn't go relatively smoothly. Yeah, I mean, any manager working with Levy is a bit of a worry. But, you know, Pochettino was very intense and and very demanding in his own way. And him and Levy found a way to have a very productive working relationship. So in the short term, I mean, the the performance, um, you know, in the Europa League against Vitesse, like already Harry Kane looks like a professional footballer again. And and that's an underestimated part of this, actually, that by all accounts, uh, Kane is very motivated by the fact that, that a world-class manager has come in because it shows the club's got ambition and, I guess one of the reasons why Conte might not have been keen on the job in June was because Kane's situation was completely unresolved then. Now that it looks like he's staying, um, you know, maybe this works out the best for Conte and Kane and that, you know, Kane gets a um, a manager that's going to push him with an elite mentality and, um, and Conte gets one of the best centre-forwards in world football. So... You know, there's every reason to suspect the football is going to get better quite quickly. And, and that game, you know, is a bonkers game. Obviously finished like, you know, 10 men and nine men. Um, but the first 35, 40 minutes of that game, we played some really, really good stuff. And already you could see Emerson Royale and, and Reguilon, you know, making those bombing on runs from wing back. Kane was playing as a proper nine rather than as a defensive midfield player like he was against United. Uh, you know, the, I think the centre-backs are probably going to be the, the issue to begin with. I think probably we'll end up in a few bonkers, helter-skelter games until he can coach up a back three that he likes. I mean, the best balance probably is going to be Romero. I mean, I would like it to be Romero, Rodon, Tanganga, because I'm I'm kind of done with 
with the Eric Dyer experience at this point. And I don't know how much more Ben Davis I care to watch either. But we'll see how he goes with that. It might be that, you know, one of the January signings might be another centre-back. All right, then. So plenty to watch out for. As only going to change massively, isn't it? Because he's one of these figures that will put such a strong blueprint down that the side is just has to look different almost by almost by design. And given how hostile things have become, I imagine all the supporters are going to be right behind him because, you know, anyone but Nuno was almost the feeling towards the end there. Uh, right, we will be back before too much longer. We're going to have another few of these little episodes uh, just dotted along the way. Before we come back, before too much longer, with the third series proper of Four at the Back, we'll be looking at some more of our favourite teams from across the Premier League history. So look forward to that, and uh, we'll see you again before too much longer.